Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Matthew Sauer. He is co-founder and partner of Wolvery & Co., a strategic legal advisory out of New York City. Thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we were chatting before the show and I always like to do that to kind of build the bond and stuff. You got a really cool backstory and a really cool things you're working on and stuff. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Can we start with that backstory? Give me a background. Like my favorite joke is you were born and then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Can you feel like <laughs> the dash in between there? Not so much on the born side, but how did you get into mergers and acquisition? What is your history and what are you working on now type of stuff? Yeah. So I grew up outside of Baltimore. I grew up in the country, kind of northwest of Baltimore. I was a football player, high school, college, ended up going to Teal College, got recruited to go to Teal College, which is western Pennsylvania, kind of between Pittsburgh, Erie, and Youngstown, up in that area to play. And I had always thought about going to law school, and it was less about mergers and acquisitions and more about wanting to become a sports agent. And that was really at the core of it. And I knew I wasn't going to be a NFL athlete and play long-term. And one of my dad's college friends was a fairly successful NFL agent. My dad had always talked about that. It was also around the time where Drew Rosenhaus and some of the other big-time kind of agent personalities came onto the scene and were really front and center and Jerry Maguire was out with Tom Cruise. I thought that was a an interesting way to keep the sports piece, but also bring in the business piece into it. And putting the deals together, it always fascinated me. And so I went to college there, played football, got hurt my sophomore year, and really kind of doubled down on going to law school. Ended up going to Notre Dame for law school. Around the time I was going there, I actually had a conversation with my dad's friend that I mentioned, and he said to me, look, the business has changed from when you were growing up and when I got into this, it's not the same thing. You should go on the team side or the league side. That's where the money is. That's where the interesting business aspect is, and you should really focus on that. And to do that, you should get into corporate law. I said, okay, that makes sense to me. I'm going to try to do that. So I had, from the time I stepped foot at Notre Dame for law school, I had the thinking, I'm going to get into transactional work. And that was reinforced through my experience there. It's law school, if you know anything about it or have had friends or other people you know that have gone through it. 
it's very litigation focused. It's hard to teach the transactional piece. And even my first summer internship was litigation. I was fortunate to, through a professor's connection, get into the top firm in the world, Curvest, Swain & Moore in New York City, to do transactional work. They didn't recruit at Notre Dame at the time, but because of that connection, I got into that and then fell in love with mergers and acquisitions, corporate work. I actually do some dispute work now where there's a deal that needs to be cut or you need to use litigation to catalyze something else or the threat of it. And so we do a little bit of that now, but that's really the core of my advisory practice is family and founder-led businesses and of all sizes, public and private, and helping them through catalytic, transformational, and strategic events. And that could be M&A, could be a governance issue, it could be capital raising, it could be some kind of dispute or a mix of all of those. And then there's a piece of the business that looks more like what you would think a McKinsey or a management consulting firm would do that's more strategic, looking at the business, the operations, the strategy, and figuring out how to either cut costs, make more money, or some kind of creative partnership for part or all of the business. It's interesting. I actually got into law school. I thought I was going to be a, I thought I wanted to do intellectual property law. And I was probably only one or two classes into it when I ended up in a divorce and couldn't afford paying for the alimony and all the, the like the divorce settlement cost <laughs> and go to law school at the time. So I, I dropped off for a little bit. I thought, I'll come back when this is over with. There was a benefit to it because one of the consulting gigs I did, I was in IT, like running big projects, running big data centers and stuff. And one of the contracts I had, they were looking for a desk for me. And I said, hey, there's an empty desk in there beside your IP attorney. I said, I was going to start law school to become an IP attorney. You mind if I sit beside him, see what he does? And I can manage my projects in there. I won't bring any traffic into his office. I'll hold my meetings outside of there. And that way I can get to know the guy and see what he does. After watching him for about six months while I was managing that project, I was like, this guy is about suicidal bored. I don't like paperwork, 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 and very little, little. I thought you'd get to mess with cool inventions and stuff. And yeah. it's mostly transactional paperwork and sorting through stuff and research and just not me. I'm glad I didn't. It's funny you say that though, because the my first summer, as I said, I did litigation and I kind of knew I didn't really want to do it. But when you're a litigator, people think it's what you see on TV all the time where they're standing up in the courtroom. Sure, there's a little bit of that. A lot of it is you're basically writing term papers all the time. And I that summer, I wanted to I was like, this is not for me. This is not my thing. Even on the transactional side, a lot of it, when you're in one of these big firms, as I was, a lot of it is the paperwork piece of it and making sure that's right. And they really run a leverage model where they push down all of that work because they want to get lower cost of labor on that. And then the fun stuff, or at least I think it's the fun stuff, which is cutting the deals and negotiating, all the old guys get to do that. And so I didn't get to do that at all. And then when we started our firm, part of it was our whole thing is let's do that premium piece, that valuable piece where you need the personal connection. You need to understand the deal. You need to understand the business. And you're really cutting the deal and helping clients through that. And then we'll bolt on. Uh, if we need labor for a deal, like if you're doing an M&A deal for the diligence and documentation work, we'll bolt that on and have a partner firm do that for us and not carry that labor on our balance sheet. 
and not have to do that ourselves. And it's worked out really well. It's, it's to your point, like it's, it's doubling down on the fun stuff and kind of outsourcing the other piece. And you collect a little margin on the outsource. And in my view, it's a model that fits my personality way more than kind of the big firm high leverage model did, at least at the younger level. It's interesting. One of the things my father was, I would say he's entrepreneurial. He owned a painting or a remodeling company. When I told him I didn't want to do that anymore, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I don't know, don't know yet. The painting remodeling company I ran from the time I was 16 until the time I was 20 and I joined the military. But we were always having the conversation like, this isn't what I want to do. Like, you can't grow it because we had three crews at one point. We were doing pretty good. And they grow this. I'm like, yeah, it's just it's not where I want to be. And he's like, what do you want to do? One of the things he said is go talk, think of stuff you want to do and go talk to people that are doing it. And that's always stuck with me. It's like, it's kind of how I started this podcast. <laughs> I wanted to do mergers and acquisitions. I paid two mentors to teach me a little bit about it, but I still had so many questions. I started interviewing people and like, they were good. And so I started putting them online. That said, go back to the, you know, the other thing there. I started asking attorneys out there. Like I started going, finding friends of mine who did law school and stuff. The other thing I determined was I knew a lot of people who went to law school, like they went to law school, right? Passed the bar they're not practicing law anymore. So I started doing yep. the research of it. And there's a high percentage of that. I was like, okay, I'm going to do something else. So that was a determining factor. It's like I could find intellectual property. I already knew that wasn't the thing, but I had already been accepted to law school. I thought it was going to be pretty easy to get back into when I went back. I didn't realize they'd make me start over again because I waited too long. <laughs> like new letters of recommendation and all that. That said, I really just like started trying to look up, well, okay, what area of law would I enjoy? That's why I went out and talked to all these different, probably talked about a dozen people started doing the research and found out a lot of the guys just don't practice law anymore. Yeah, that's right. My business partner went from partner in a big law firm to running M&A at JP Morgan as an investment banker. And you can do that. I always say to people, look, I wouldn't go to law school necessarily to say you're going to go do something else and not be a lawyer for a little bit. But if you're kind of on the fence and you want to do it, it does give you optionality and I think, and look, I'm biased, obviously, because I am a lawyer, but that's the hard piece, in my view, to learn. The math is fairly straightforward and fairly simple. If you get a cut, there's a couple books you can read on it, and you're pretty much there. And then it's just understanding operations and business. But the legal piece is always, it's like a hidden skill a little bit that I think the really good business folks understand it enough a lot of times, and they they know at least the right questions to ask and the right things to look for to raise their hand. They might not always know the answer. I don't always know the answer, and I'm a lawyer, but I do think it is really beneficial to doing deals, running business, and just being operating in the space that we do. I almost continued just because one of the things that stuck in my head, I had an economics professor who had a law degree and he was a real estate investor. He taught college for fun, but he made most of his money in commercial real estate investing. And I asked him one day, I said, why do you maintain the bar? Why do you maintain your license? He says, well, in real estate, you're either the hammer or the nail. So when people realize I'm a practicing attorney, they're less likely to bug me about stupid stuff. So he goes, if I do something wrong, they're still going to sue me. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I have to do something wrong where if you're in real estate, they could just decide that they they see money in your bank account and they want some of it and they're going to come after you. That's right. A lot of great real estate investors are lawyers. Yeah. I don't regret not doing it. I ended up getting a master's degree in marketing of all things. That said, at one point I thought I had a real estate investment firm in Oklahoma. I sold it to my business partner and we split the properties. That's how we sold it. So it wasn't actually a sell, but 
we split the properties up. One of us got more properties than the other, and that was our transaction to, to exit it. At one point, we, we were doing so many deals, and we are using so many hours. Lawyer. One of our business expenses was lawyer for stuff. And so I started looking around like, I'm just going to buy a law firm. Turns out you can't. I don't know if it's all states, but in Oklahoma, you cannot own a law firm unless you're an attorney. So they just changed the rule in Arizona. Arizona is the only state you can do it. You can do it outside of the United States. Hmm. So there are some law firms that basically are just professional services firms. They're rolling up accounting firms, law firms, consultancies, you name it. A lot of that is outside of the U.S. because you can do it in a lot of other countries. Arizona is the only state that, and I don't know all of the rules, but that you can do it. And that's fairly recent, like within the last two years or so. I was looking for a way around it. I already was starting to study mergers and acquisitions. I hired a performance coach. That's how I got in the space. I hired a performance coach when I was kind of winding down the real estate thing to figure out if I was burned out or the, if I thought the market was declining. I was like, is the market really declining or am I just burned out on this? So I hired a performance coach. And one of the things the guy said to me after knowing me for a little while, I was like, one of the things that the part that stuck in my head is I should be playing a bigger game. So I'd flip a freaking house. Sometimes a good flips $40,000, say wired in our business account. I see the wire hit our business account and I hear his daggum voice, but you should be playing a bigger game. <laughs> <laughs> so I look for a bigger game, started studying and researching this. That's how I kind of come over here. Done with real estate, looking for something else. And then I reached out to you know people to train me on this space. One of the things we're going to talk about here shortly is roll-ups. One of the first things I did out of the gate is teamed up with a group of about eight of us, and we did a fairly unique, I think it's unique, in the roll-up space. And so what is your experience in roll-ups? I know you have some strategies and stuff and that are prevalent out there. Yeah, I've advised on a lot of these and continue to, mainly around the M&A strategy of doing it, buying. And your typical roll-up, you think a private equity firm. They buy a platform business, which is just a, it's essentially a business of some kind of size where you, you get kind of that immediate chunk of EBITDA and revenue. And depending on how big the private equity firm is, will scale on where, how big that platform business can be. And then they bolt on other and acquire other ancillary businesses. So one of the spaces that is really hot right now is is collision repair. So you have some of these guys like Caliber Collision that buy a either a large or a group of collision repair shops in a region. And then what they do is they buy it, professionalize it a little bit because a lot of times they're mom and pop and there's some fat to cut on them. And then they continue to buy other shops. And what happens when you buy other shops is you're able to share the overhead expense. So your corporate office expense, so to speak, and your margin increases as you get scale. You have more pricing power for parts. You have more pricing power for other things that go into the business. And then after, call it five, seven years, and you've done those acquisitions and built this up, the idea is you not only built a bigger company, you've built it with a lot of times with debt, so you get leverage on your money, and then you're able to then sell that for a higher multiple because you have a bigger business. So it's multiple expansion. And there's billionaires that have made a lot of money from Steve Schwartzman to Henry Kravis and you pick your big private equity firms, that's their strategy. And they just implement that in, and they do other things now, obviously, but 
from a roll-up perspective, their bread and butter is LBO, build it, sell it. And they've made a ton of money on that. So what we did was marketing agencies. And the reason we chose marketing agencies is they're fragmented. And there's a kind of a glass ceiling or a barrier inside of marketing agencies that exist. So if you're a small marketing agency, you've spent years training your staff, developing skill sets, and now you've got some people inside of your agency that are really highly skilled and they're ready for that next big contract. They're wanting to get their hands in on a Coca-Cola or a, a bigger name thing. Unfortunately, not a single one of those big companies will hire the smaller agencies. You're just not big enough to handle them. You almost train your own employees out of the ability to stay at your own company. So uh, you're big enough that you have the talent, but you're too small to actually bid on the right jobs. So that you're talking about the arbitrage between multiple levels. There's a huge discrepancy between firms under 10 million and then firm, the bigger firms. So we could look at between three and five X, depending on their technology on the you know lower end, maybe six on some of them. On the back end at the end, we could sell for 10, 11, 12, right? So that's what we were looking at, but we did it in a unique way. We didn't want to raise funds. We didn't want to do private placement memorandums or LBOs. So what we did is we started off with a, I told you a little bit about this before. I don't figure we talk about here. Our strategy is we came up with an idea. We took it to our attorneys and said, we want to do A, B, and C. They scratched their head and go, yeah, well, A will work, but B and C is going to get you in trouble. And then we come by. And by the time we got this thing done, it was a few months later, probably six or seven months into this, we finally had a working plan where we were on A, X, and Z. <laughs> and it, what it was is we used, how do I simplify this? We were buying market agencies with zero money down. It was all a contractual, but we were only participating in the uplift. So they were giving, we were doing like an option contract with waterfall techniques. They had all this technology or terminology inside of there. But what we would do is we'd come in and we'd agree upon a valuation now. They would get that valuation ownership shares in the overall company we were building. And then our, well, how we participated in that is we only got to participate in the uplift. And we had a way to calculate that uplift of not only just the multiple increase when we sold because they were 4X to 12X, but we looked at our last two or three years of their trajectory and anything we could increase them above that because of cross-selling, upselling, and working with the other agencies was yeah. part of that uplift. So we just participated in the benefit of the roll-up. Agencies were loving it, kind of tell us to shorten the story a little bit. The agencies were loving it. We lined up, I want to say 215, 216, I'm going to get my numbers mixed up. Initial calls for agencies doing a million to $10 million a year in revenue in less than 180, 190 days. Because, you know, as I said, most people think about they have to put money down and they got to put all this money up or they got to get all this debt to do these deals. And I know we were talking before, I work a lot with big family offices and one of them I'm working with and talking to about going to public companies because there's a lot of assets underneath the kind of main core business that they've either acquired or they've incubated internally that isn't really core anymore because they've changed their strategy or you know something happened with the business and it's not that great of a business anymore for them and they're just not paying attention to it cuz it's you're talking a billion dollars of revenue and it's a this division's 40 million of revenue so it's not really that significant and 
there's also an opportunity there where they try to sell a larger division that has kind of sub pieces to it that buyers don't always want and they're not going to take in a deal. So they need to offload. And so both of those dynamics create an opportunity to go in and what we're doing is actively coming up with a strategy and talking to people about using earnouts and essentially shares like you were talking about to agree on evaluation, not really pay any cash up front, move very quickly, which is important for them. Yep. Take those entities, stand them up, either grow them or sell them or do both, grow then sell and capture some of that upside and then the public company benefits from it too. There's other aspects of that and reasons from an accounting perspective that it's attractive to them and from a kind of a time and bandwidth perspective, but that's a strategy that we're looking at that's kind of creative and it's not let's go buy mom and pop and try to do that in all the surrounding counties and then keep moving out as you do that in whatever industry. It's a very interesting thing because there are especially in the tech world, there are constantly companies that are shutting down teams and divisions that are revenue generating, have a decent product. Maybe they're only, I mean, some of them are small, really small, five, $10 million a year in revenue to a multi-billion. If Google buys a company and they bought it because they wanted these five rockstar engineers and they, they do aqua hire all the time. Yep. They'll buy a company just for these five engineers that happen to be there. They have five leading AI engineers and Google wants them. So they buy their company they're working. <laughs> well, that everywhere now. Yeah. And one of the side projects over here is a five or $10 million revenue that they have. They'll just shut it up in a blink of an eye. They'll shut it down. Cause I, I know somebody, you know, I've interviewed a couple guys that do divestures. Like basically they hunt these things down. I'm like, how do you source the deal? That was my biggest question from how do you source a deal? And for most of them, they just came from the VC space. They come from those, they have fillers inside of these companies. Yep. So people reach out to them and go, Hey, we know you buy this one, but computer security companies, software security companies, like the software security tools. And so if Google had a software security tool, they weren't going to use, they're going to shut it down. He's bought, I think one or two from Google, one or two from other big, big players. And he does 25 to million dollar, 25 to $50 million. Like that's the range that's kind of, what he's looking for but these companies shut the stuff down all the time they shut it down the real question is how do you let them know that you're interested because it's so little to them they don't want to put the effort in you got yeah. it you really have to your comment about being in the industry and being in the flow is vital and that's with you have to really pound the pavement with the corporate development folks and mm -hmm. talk to them take them out have them understand what you're doing, how you can be helpful to them. Mm -hmm. It's a sales job to those folks. And then it's the investment bankers too. They cover those companies because they know where all of those assets are, what they want to do. If they're a good investment banker, I mean, that's their whole job. And it's oftentimes not big enough for them to collect a fee on. So they're not going to pay that much attention to it, but mm -hmm. they're going to know hey, this company's looking to get rid of this big division. Buyers aren't going to want these three pieces. Would you be interested in those? And you want to start having a flow where you're getting those calls. And it's oftentimes helpful to the banker, even though they're not going to collect a fee, because they're going to solve a problem for their client. And that means they're going to be looked at more favorably for the bigger deal that they really want. And so you need to really get in that network it's hard. I mean, there's some people that hunt around like a hedge fund analyst would in public filings, but the stuff we're talking about is often too small that it even doesn't even get mentioned in a 10K, for example, or a 10Q. 
And so it's really a challenge. It's honestly getting in that flow, picking a couple industries, really digging deep and getting to know the corp dev folks and the bankers in that space, at least that I've seen. I know that's not, there's no technology in that really. It's all human and personal, but I've often found that's how you find that stuff. I guess there's certain ways to get introduced to those types of things. You could go to trade shows and stuff, but usually the trade shows are your sales reps and the, they're like just normally not the CEOs. And a lot of times I've worked for some of the big guys. I don't think some of the bigger CEOs even know some of the smaller divisions, right? As I say, the decision to shut down a $5 million side project never even hits the CEO's desk of a billion dollar company. It's just done. It's gone. So, or 10 million or even a $15 million, 20 million, something that would, an acquisition entrepreneur would love to get their hands on. And the other side of it, I think there's a missing too, because if you were going to go down this route, if you're out there listening, it's like, man, I'm going to go out and do divestures. I'm going to go find these things. Understand that when you buy these, you're not buying. It's not the same thing as buying your mom and pop stuff. So a lot of times they're going to keep, there's going to keep certain talent out of the team. They're going to pull talent out of your team. So you're not going to get all the employees. You're not going to get any leadership, like all the VPs and stuff like that, that would normally come with a $25, $50 million company. You're going to have to build that team yourself. There's a good chance that you... You might get the product manager and you might get some engineers that wrote it and some other stuff. But the ones I've seen, I've talked to probably five or six people that have done these. It's like you don't always get the team. No, and it's even beyond team, it's infrastructure. And it's the things you don't think about. So the payroll systems or the CRM systems, like a lot of that infrastructure is lumped together with the bigger corporation. And you're not really getting that because they don't have a dedicated team for that or a platform for that. And so there's a lot of pieces you have to figure it stand up. And that's part of those deals that makes them difficult. It's difficult on the diligence side because you have to figure out what's coming, what isn't, what's vital and critical when you're evaluating the deal. And if it's not coming that you can't do it. And then what services do you need that you, you're not going to get, you can live without, but that you need to bridge a period. So there's a lot of times what's called a transition services agreement that's put in place. I've seen them as little as a couple months to multi-years where you're essentially contracting with the company that this piece is coming from and for IT services is an example or some kind of product expertise that they cap and that they have that you need. And what that's doing is giving you a period of time where the business isn't interrupted and you can find a solution that, you know, is on your side, whether it's another company providing the service, cutting a long-term deal with the existing company, or just hiring organically and building it. But it gives you that bridge period without interrupting service of whatever the business might be. It's vital. My first instinct would be like, okay, what's a team I need? Got to have a good lawyer. Got to have a good CPA. That's just any M&A deal. But inside of these divestors, I like, I've got an IT background, but I've been out of it for 20 years. So I probably want somebody that like, who could just a rock star that could set up a CRM tool, could set up accounting tools, could set up the software tools I needed within days. If you're going to explain in this realm, who do I need on my team that would be unique and different from a typical M&A team? I think you'd need more systems and process guys like IT systems and guys who can help document processes because you think about it, a lot of the standard operating procedures and stuff around companies they're integrated with the bigger company you got to be able to extract that and make it its own like how does this thing run on its own that's our strategic team that would be different and that's part of i think any you know any acquirer no matter how small or large needs to think about what their skill set is 
what role do they want to play separate and apart from their skill set? And then what else do they need and how do they fill that in? And there's folks that I just met with a friend of mine that is leaving a big private equity firm, is starting his own search fund, essentially. And he doesn't want to be the operator. He wants to sit on a board. He wants to help a little bit with M&A strategy, but really he wants to find targets and deploy capital. That's what he wants to do. And he needs a very different team around him than someone that is uh, an operator themselves and they want to buy a business to be in it and operate it and be the CEO day to day and then build it from within. You have to identify that from the start and then figure out what you need because a lot of people, and I'm sure you've seen this, but it's all over, it, they don't do that. And then they get in a position where they're, they just want to deploy capital and find businesses. And really what they bought is either too small, so they need to be the operator because they can't afford one, or doesn't have a management team, so they have to step in and do it. And I think that's how people get into bad deals a lot of times. I've interviewed about 130 people at this point. And what comes along with that is people, even though I beg them not to, they come to me for advice. Like you've interviewed all these people, what would you do? And the one thing I will say is I don't think like your friend who's doing the, wanting to be the operator, I don't think that works a hundred percent. Like people say in real estate, it's a passive investment. That's, there's very few things on planet on the planet are true passive investments. I think the idea of buying something and stepping back and having somebody else run it is to some extent a fallacy. And here's where I'm going with this. I would expect anything you buy, depending on the amount of capital and whose capital you're deploying, you got a lot at risk, right? Either you got personal guarantees for SBA loans or you've raised money or you've got your family money that you know should be for next generation that you're going to leverage and risk against this thing. It's so critical that it's so important that if things go sideways, if your operator doesn't show up one day and he's got a better job, who's going to that site to run that until you bring in another operator? And if it's not you, if you're not capable of that, you better have one heck of a team that, you know, somebody can be a fractional operator and jump from site to site because somebody's got to run that. Somebody's got to manage that facility while you're doing that new search, while you're doing an executive search. And if anybody's been in that space, that's not an overnight thing. It could take six months to 18 months to find a great executive, a great CEO or general manager or whatever title you want to give that individual. They're not lined up not, they're not lined up on the side of the street looking for jobs that say, we'll work the food. The great operators have jobs. You're going to have to steal it from some other company. That's, that's <laughs> right. And you see it a lot too in the real estate space. And it's the same thing. People yeah. say they want to buy real estate properties, rent them out, and it's passive income. Well, Who's doing the property management? Even if you have that, who's managing them? Who's making sure everything's going right? And to give my friend a little benefit of the doubt, he wants to be involved. I think there is probably a gap there, right? Where there's a little bit of space and daylight between what he wants to do and what he probably will have to do. But I agree. I mean, there's no team, there's no acquisition of the size we're talking about. That's not a multi-billion dollar company or hundreds of millions at this stage that you're not going to have to really get in there and understand the business, develop a rapport with the team and be able to pinch hit where you need to. That frankly is the key is finding the right spots to do that. If something catastrophic happens and you have a CEO leave is an example that you have to deal with and you have to be able to adapt and roll with the punches. And that's yeah. what 
separates the good ones from the bad ones in terms of people that deploy capital is being able to pivot like that and take those changes and roll with them and still make something out of it. But I completely agree. It is not a hands-off or passive investment whatsoever, especially especially if you're putting your own capital in, you've signed a PG and this is your first one and you're trying to figure it out. So when people ask me the same thing, they'll ask me like, we have these meetups where we meet up with people in the space. They're acquisition entrepreneurs and the people looking to buy businesses. When I ask them what they're looking to buy, they're like, I'm looking for anything, anywhere. And I was like, really? Would you live anywhere? He goes, I'm not going to be the operator. I'm like, I'll bet money. I'm a gambling guy. I said, I'll bet you five grand you buy a company some, sometime within the first two years. You're going to have to be at that facility for more than 30 days. I'll give you a little bit. You're going to be at that facility for more than 60 days at some point. So don't buy anything in any city or any area that you would hate to be in for 60 days. I hate cold weather. I'm not going to buy something in northern Montana or in Canada or something where it's zero or Alaska. You know, I don't care if it's making $10 billion a year. I guess I'm a dirty capitalist pig. That was a bad example. <laughs> Let's just say it's 5 or $6 million a year, and it's very profitable. But if you told me I had, to, I had to spend the coldest months of the year in Alaska with no sunlight, I would probably tell you, you know what, let's find something else. So I always tell people, start off with, like, give me a list of places you just would not live, right? Cities you just don't want to visit. And we'll eliminate those. Once you start realizing there are certain things you don't want to do even for money. It only helps people to do that as well, yeah. because that bias is going to come out when you're evaluating the deal and you're going to waste your time spending that time to get to that point where yeah. the bias comes out. There are very few people, I think, that will look at a deal and say, I would never go to Ohio is an example. And they're probably not going to buy, go all the way to buy business in Ohio, at least not their first one, because, and then they're going to realize how hard it is and what they actually have to do. And then they're not going to, but I was talking to my buddy today, again, the same guy. And we were talking about, it's hard on the first one of figuring out how to do it and getting the gumption to actually spend the money, especially when it's your money or your family's money to do it. It's like, so the second one I told him says, start now make a list of things you won't do. And he says, well, the money's right. I'll do anything. I said, okay. One of the last businesses, this is years ago, but one of the first businesses I evaluated, one of the ones I evaluated right before the guy asked me the question was a company that did porta potties and septic removal. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, that's fine. I said, and it made a lot of money. It was seven figures, millions in a place like Oklahoma, where well, that's a lot of money. Cost of living is lower. He's like, for millions of dollars, I'll do a septic. I said, okay. He goes, I'm the operator. I'll never have to, I'm the owner. I'll never have to go out and do it. So I was like, I said, I visited the owner two or three different times. And I promise you, I've never met the man where he didn't smell a little bit like, like septic. If somebody doesn't show up or something like that, even at a company, he's got a few dozen employees. Somebody doesn't show up. Guess who's going to go out there and pump that stuff out, right? You have a spill when the, like somebody dumped over one of the trailers in the car and spilt the, the porta potties. You got an inspector coming by, or especially in other states where EPA is really active. EPA is coming by in two hours, and somebody just spilled something toxic in your yard. You're going to roll up your sleeves and help you guys, or you're going to lose your business, your choice. So don't tell yeah. me you're not going to do it. So there's this whole concept. I think there's a fallacy that like I don't ever have to roll up my hands and get into the business. I think that's a mistake for most people. Be willing to get in hands on with anything you buy. You can engineer it to where you don't have to. You can engineer it where you're the operator and you get to stand back and run it. I'm hands off with one of mine right now. It's 1,800 miles away. But if it came to a point where I was going to lose it or something like that, I'd fly back to Oklahoma in a heartbeat and help make sure it succeeds. I own a yeah. pest control company in Oklahoma. That said, you got to be able to go. And I've never touched chemical. I don't like the idea of chemicals. 
But uh, I'd fly back there in a heartbeat and start interviewing new techs if I if my techs quit or something. I might even grab the pump truck and go deliver it. I know how to. I'm trained on it. I just don't <laughs> want to. But don't want to and need to are two different things. And just be understand, like, in this space, you're in a business, you've got people's jobs on the line, stuff like that. Are you willing to cross that line and don't want to and don't need to and get in and do something you need to do even though you don't want to? Because I hear that conversation all the time. It's passive. I'm going to stay behind. I'm going to be the operator. Like, yeah, until you're not. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't want to look at insurance policies for my business. That doesn't get me up in the morning to go do stuff. But guess what? I'm doing it because it's important and you have to. And I I do think that there is this like fantasy dream of I'm going to buy something and it's going to be passive or I'm only going to get to do the fun stuff in it where really there's a lot of stuff beneath that when you're working at a big company is kind of automated, or at least it's not automated, but it feels automated because you don't have to worry about it. Even a lot of times the CEOs or the senior executives in those companies don't have to worry about it because it's just such a big organization that it runs itself to where if you're in a small business or even a mid-sized business, a $100 million business, a lot of times it's still you're still rolling your sleeves up in areas you don't, you're not thinking about or other people aren't that are in big organizations or middle manager somewhere or whatever. Right. So I don't want to run out of time without talking about some of the stuff, cool stuff you're working on, because I know you're an attorney, you help other people, but from having a few other conversations with you, I know you have some of your own acquisitions. You do some really cool little things. Let's talk about some of the stuff that you're looking at in the acquisition and how you got into that space. So I have a vehicle armoring business with a buddy of mine from Maryland. For some reason, when I grew up, a lot of my friends in the country, they all had separate auto body and collision repair shops. It was a weird coincidence. I always joke around with people. I know more about that industry than a lot of other industries just because of I had all my friends that were in it. And they all did really well. And so kind of taking that and then marrying it with my advisory business, I deal with a lot of, in that business, a lot of high net worth families. A lot of them have their own family offices, which basically is a company that just manages their own wealth and deploys it just like a private equity firm would. And some of these people are hundreds of millions of dollars into the billions of net worth. So very significant folks. And There was, I saw an opportunity on that side where there was really essentially one player in the vehicle armoring space in the United States, at least. And a lot of their customers were outside of the States over the last few years without getting into the politics of everything. I think at least the sensationalization of, if that's even a word, of violence and a threat to bodily harm or of harm in general it has kind of increased and on a global scale, but particularly in the U.S. And people are looking for different ways to improve their own home safety. And that's from cyber to physical. And with ring doorbells is a great example of that. You see those videos all the time. And so we saw this opportunity where there was one player in the vehicle armoring space. I had a client that was looking for one. And I literally called my buddy that had a closure repair shop. And I said, could you do this in your facility if we could source the materials and figure this out? And he said, let me go do some work and I'll come back and tell you. I've never done it. 
And the answer was yes. And so we then just launched into doing that. We have right now, it's the ability to do custom for people from glass to Kevlar to run flat tires, everything from handgun grades to assault rifle grades and bomb grade on different things. And then we're building a Suburban right now on spec as well that we'll we'll end up selling that we'll probably showcase in some kind of media. And then as an adjunct to that, I'm looking with him at a collision repair business that has a towing component and a used car component to it in the single digit millions range of business. So a smaller one that he'll operate. I'm going to be involved in it, but I would have never probably done it without having that operator there because I, it takes time. I run my advisory business that takes time and he knows that business inside and out. And I trust him. We have an existing relationship there and have since we were younger. And so we're going to jump into it together, but maybe probably scale it and see what happens with it at that point. But it's essentially just a, it's a cash flow roll-up play on that. But it's, we're not going to, at least the idea right now is we don't want to raise outside money. We don't want to do all of that. We'll get debt to buy it and all that, mm-hmm. but we're going to use our own money and do it and try to build it ourselves that way with him being the operator. That's awesome. You could even, there's verticals you could go into. You have armored vehicles. You can secure vehicles. The thing I was thinking about is for like SWAT teams, for yep. all the big cities, for even patrol cars, just to, Doing the door, just even if a cop had a door to get behind or something, something that was, he knew with the glasses bulletproof and the door had some armoring in it, that would be extremely beneficial somewhere to take cover <laughs> in the event of open fire. Cause most doors aren't, I don't know if you, I'm a redneck kid, grew up in the country, abandoned cars left in the woods were always fun to shoot at. And I tell you that doors are not, doors don't stop anything. It goes in and out, in one side and out the other. That's the next phase of this. You talk about systems. You were talking about that before. Part of what we wanted to do, and frankly, part of why we did this one on spec is we want to get our systems down Mm -hmm. to where we know how the intake's working, how supply's working, how the process works and what we can do, what we can't do. Because then the next phase is exactly what you're talking about, where you go get government contracts, you go get security company contracts, and you do fleets and you Mm -hmm. do it's B2B, not B2C. And that's really the next phase if we want to kind of really take that to the next level and grow it is you get some of those security company contracts where you're outfitting a whole fleet of cars, and you're going to have a steady stream and you get a couple of those. That's a significant business because this stuff, as I said, there's not many that do it and it's premium work. You have to get it right. It takes craftsmanship and it's a, it's life or death. If you don't get it right, there's not, and that's premium work and it doesn't take many of those to really scale it. I know people who have safe rooms in their house and stuff. And where I'm from in Oklahoma, it's got dual purpose, right? (laughs) You want to hide from the tornado, but that's another thing. Maybe storm chasers, like if you the velocity of things coming out of storm chasers car is the same. So the storm chaser vehicles, that stuff, there's all kinds of cool things you can get into that space. So I like that vertical. What else are you working on? Looking at that, I just had a, a medical imaging equipment deal. It's kind of a distributor deal come across the table. It's too new. I haven't spent much time on it, but a buddy of mine brought it to me, wants to see if we can do it and have me help him do it. But doing that and doing that public company strategy, which is mainly 
business services, industrial focused, because that's where a lot of, I think there's cash flow value and trap value inside of these companies. And so we're trying to get that, that going as well, but that's kind of across the spectrum. I mean, that plus the advisory business, that's enough for a few people. Any particular markets you're looking like the imaging? I know somebody that has, he's an MD and he owns an imaging center and he actually I'll give him away if I say anything else, but he's got some other very interesting careers. Where's that located at? The Northeast. This guy has businesses in Oklahoma, Tennessee, and some other stuff. We should talk about that if I move forward on the diligence on it. It's like radiologist machines and things like that. The stuff that would go into a hospital or a radiologist practice and all that. His specialty is he owns, I think, an MRI type of and other imaging center because he does the spinal injections for pain management. Yeah, it's the distributor business on the medical side is interesting because you've seen some of the roll-ups in that space with private equity where mm. they essentially, you have the same end customer, right? It's a hospital, it's a clinic, same kind of clinic or a physician, and you build out that network of those end customers, and then you just add on to your catalog of things you sell to them. So you're seeing there's private equity firms all over the place that are doing that, and frankly, public companies that are doing that. And they just build really good and customer relationships. A lot of times they're telling them what they want and what they're buying. And then they go out and acquire a company in that to add to the, essentially the catalog under the umbrella. And there's people that made a lot of money doing it. I'm intrigued, Mike, but the uncertainty of where our economy is going, there's a few industries that probably won't get hit as hard. And like health is going to be one of those. People are always going to want the best healthcare they can afford. So health and wellness is one of the areas where I don't think it's going to get hit as hard by, I don't think anything's recession proof, but I don't think it would get hit as hard as some of the other industries. Like I wouldn't be looking to buy an amusement park right now. (laughs) People running out of money to buy food. Well, Disney just laid off 7,000 people. I don't know which part of the business it was in, but they have an amusement park. The trick is that now might be the time to buy them because it'll be on sale. All economies are cyclical. If you can afford to buy them and wait them out, you might be able to find some bargains on some of these things. That's exactly right. You have to have the capital and the conviction. Those are two hard things to get. And we're seeing this up and down the value chain. You're seeing a disconnect still between buyers and where they think the world is and what prices look like and where sellers' heads are at. As you said, there's tons of dry powder, but until you close that gap and have people meet, none of it's going to get deployed. In the smaller deals... I would venture to say it's not always about the money. The bigger deals you get outside players, especially public deals. It's like you get outside players. There are a lot of external forces in play. On a small business deal, meaning if it's $10, $15, 20000000 million and below and it's a single family, there's a lot of stuff that come into play. One of the things I've learned after interviewing, a, like I said, 120, 130 people at this point is the highest bid doesn't always get the deal. I would venture to say the people that are not getting there because the seller thinks the numbers should be here and they're there, they should really lean into what else does that seller need? What is the seller trying to accomplish? There's a lot of creative ways. I, I, mean, I just do it all the time in real estate. If somebody says, I'm looking at a house and I think the house should be worth 200K and the, the owner says, I want 350K for it. It's like, okay, I'll pay you $350 a month for a thousand months. Will that work? When they're like, no, I can't do that. I'm like, well, you wanted 350K, we can get you there. But I have to be able to make money on the house too. So you can either name the price or the terms. Is my has always been the inside. That's, like you get to pick the price or the terms. That's definitely right. And a lot of people miss that. Even seasoned 
deal makers miss that. And I will say to your point about larger companies or even public companies, you'd be surprised at how personal that can get. And you're talking about big egos. You're talking about people that care a lot and put a lot into their jobs and what they're doing. And they really wear it on their chest. But to your point of the family-owned businesses, it is. There's a ton of human psychology in it. And it's not always about price. It's about how does it feel? What's going to happen to my legacy? What's going to happen to the brand? What's going to happen to my people? Is XYZ going to get taken care of? And a lot of people just come in and miss that. They don't want to spend the time to build that relationship and that rapport to understand, to your point, what do they really care about? And is there a creative way to get to that without giving on just throwing more money at them or pounding your fist and saying you can't do a deal because it's too expensive? At the end of the day, obviously, it has to pencil out and it all has to make sense for both sides, both from a financial and an operational perspective. But there's a lot underneath of that you can play with and levers you can pull. And I think that's what really makes a skilled deal maker is someone that understands both the human element plus the financial and operational elements and can pull all of those levers in the right way and get a deal done. And and look, not every deal's going to get done, and no matter how great the company you think it is. And there's things outside of your control, but really spending time with the people is extremely important for that. Another thing I've found, and we'll wrap this particular topic up with this one is a lot of times when somebody has a high evaluation, there's external forces that they don't necessarily want to sell. They've been told they need to, their wife's trying to get them to retire. So they set a price above like, okay, I'll sell if I get this. And they're not really in the game, right? So if you can figure out what they're in the game of, like everybody's in a game of something. If you can figure out what they're trying to accomplish, what they're in the game of, I've evaluated at least a dozen deals where the owner's in the game of appeasing their the wife's need to sell the business <laughs> and they had no intention as soon as i determined that i was like okay well this conversation is done here where you're ready to really sell i'd love to chat with you you got an interesting business and stuff but how can i help you right now he said submit an loi a really low loi i can give it to my wife and say nobody's wanting to offer like i really don't want to do that but uh, yeah a lot of times there's if they're really high valuations or like the numbers just kind of out there there may be another reason why that it's even on the market. Like they're being pressured to do it. They're being pressured to retire. They're not quite ready. So like as a real estate investor, we'd send out letters to people who have a vacant homes or something like people call you and it's the guy that says, I'll sell it to you if you give me a million dollars. Well, like they're looking for the idiot that would pay two times what the house is worth. They don't have any intention. They're not motivated to be in the game. So the real question is in my world anyways, what game are they playing? Where are they motivated to move towards? Like, can I help them get there? We are at the top of the hour. Let's talk about how do people reach out to you? What do you want to work on? Let's go both sides because you, you're both an acquisition entrepreneur and an attorney that helps with these deals. So let's spend a couple of seconds here, a couple of minutes. What are you looking for acquisition targets for people to bring to you if they've got something interesting, kind of what location, demographics, whatever you want to say on that side. And let's talk about your ideal customer as far as the firm goes. And let's get both of those out there. On the first piece, I would say... Look, for myself, it's a high bar just because it's my own capital or friends and family that to deploy. It's really the single digit mid 
the EBITDA businesses that are really interesting. Would look at stuff below that, but it's uh, it's really in that range that where you can have an operator because like I said, I have a day job. But with that said, I know a lot of people that are in this space and looking all over the place, geographies, types of businesses, sizes, all of that. If there's something that's bigger than that, I know people. If there's something below that, I know people. And I'm happy to make connections with no strengths attached on that. So I would say I'd love to just see deal flow. I like seeing deals, what interesting businesses that are out there. So feel free to send them to me. And then on the advisory side, that's chunkier businesses are call it 75 million and up that are looking for strategic advice. And that could be M&A. It could be, like I said, capital raising, some kind of dispute. Would love to talk to people. And if it's not a fit for me, same thing. I work with a ton of folks and I'm always connecting people to the right, to the right end market or the end provider. So I would say I'd love to be contacted. I'd love to see stuff. Don't be shy about it. And my mind's been changed on a lot of things. So if there's something that comes across the desk that doesn't fit what I just said, who knows? I would say the easiest place is either my Twitter, which is just my name, Matthew Sauer on there. If you search that, you'll find me has my headshot and everything. I think the same one you have for the show notes. Mm -hmm. And then our website, warrico.com or my LinkedIn. Again, just my name, search Matt Sauer, Warrico, New York City, and you'll find me. Okay. That sounds great. Had a great time today. Before we end the show, though, I always like to ask, what are three things that if somebody couldn't remember anything else from the show, but they only remember those three things, what would you want them to walk away with? Based on the audience, I would love for them to walk away with Matt is someone that wants to look at businesses, that is active in the market, that is a resource for advice. I've seen stuff big and there probably isn't anything that is too esoteric or that I haven't seen before or can't wrap my head around. And I'm always happy whether I'm digging in formally or informally. If it's part of the network, I'm always happy to give advice on that and wants to connect with people. I would love to be a part of the community and deepen that. And like I, I gave out all my, my contact channels and things like that. And I would love for people to be active, reach out, follow, talk to me, engage with my stuff. Would love to be a part of the community. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you being on here today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline, leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, 
Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the itexchangenet.com slash marketplace, how to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now.